welcome to the EAU podcast. In this edition, we have Dr. Benoit Peronet, a panel member, and Ms. Neha Sira, an associate member of the EAU Guidelines Panel for Female Lower Urinary Tract Symptoms, discussing overactive bladder in women. So, dear Neha, what are the must-do when evaluating an overactive bladder patient in clinic? Thanks, Benoit. Overactive bladder is a symptom-based diagnosis, and so a thorough clinical history should always be performed to help establish the nature of the patient's lower urinary tract symptoms and to elicit any coexisting neurological, sexual, or gastrointestinal symptoms. It is essential at first consultation to assess for red flag symptoms, such as hematuria or recurrent urinary tract infections and to also outline any relevant history, such as previous surgery, radiotherapy, and any previous treatment for lower urinary tract symptoms. A clinical examination is essential. An abdominal examination may demonstrate a palpable bladder or other abdominopelvic masses. A vaginal examination will help assess estrogen status, pelvic floor muscle tone, pelvic organ prolapse, and in some cases, the clinical sign of stress urinary incontinence. A focused neurourological examination should also be performed. You can refer to section 3.1 of the EAU guidelines on non-neurogenic female LUTs for more information. The clinical history and examination should always be supplemented with a bladder diary for at least three days. This is in addition to a baseline validated symptom score. There is no specific recommendation from the guidelines panel on which symptom score or questionnaire should be used. But the key point is that the symptom score used at baseline should also be used to assess progress. Symptom scores which include a quality of life domain are extremely useful. The recommended initial basic investigations include urine dipstick testing and post-void residual volume assessment using ultrasound scan. Cystoscopy, with or without upper tract imaging, should only be performed if red flag symptoms are present. When assessing post-void residual volume, some authors suggest a PVR of more than 100 mils to be significant but there is no consensus on what constitutes a significant residual volume. For this reason, the panel recommend the use of the parameter termed bladder voiding efficiency. This is a proportion of the total bladder volume that is voided by the patient. It can be calculated as a percentage, and the calculation is the voided volume divided by the voided volume plus the post-void residual volume times 100. Urodynamics should not be routinely performed when offering first-line treatment options to patients with uncomplicated overactive bladder. What are the top dietary measures and conservative measures to tell to our overactive bladder patients? Well, it's important to emphasize the significance and potential impact of modifying fluid intake, particularly caffeine and other bladder stimulants such as alcohol. It is thought that a reduction in fluid intake by 25% may help to improve symptoms of overactive bladder, but not urinary incontinence. One should remain mindful that fluid restriction can have other consequences, including constipation and urinary tract infections, 
and therefore patients should be advised that their fluid intake should be sufficient to avoid thirst. Additional conservative advice includes weight loss, as there is evidence that the prevalence of both urge urinary incontinence and stress urinary incontinence increases proportionately with body mass index. We know that weight loss can help improve stress urinary incontinence and therefore it should be encouraged in all women with lower urinary tract symptoms or incontinence. The importance of smoking cessation should also be highlighted. Smoking cessation has been found to be weakly associated with improving storage lower urinary tract symptoms and of course has numerous other health benefits and should therefore always be encouraged. In the initial assessment, it is important to address any underlying disease which may be contributing to the patient's overactive bladder symptoms, such as cardiac disease, renal disease, diabetes, or sleep apnea, as managing these may consequently reduce the severity of their overactive bladder symptoms. We should also try to elucidate if there has been any recent change to their medication, which may have as a result contributed to a change in their urinary symptoms. Other conservative options include bladder training and pelvic floor muscle training. The main principles of bladder training are patient education with a scheduled voiding regime with gradually increasing voiding intervals. However, the ideal form or intensity for overactive bladder remains unclear. Pelvic floor muscle training programs should be as intense as possible to help achieve maximum benefit, as regular strength training of the pelvic floor muscles over time has been shown to increase both pelvic floor muscle contraction and endurance, as well as modifying the morphology of the pelvic floor, which can yield more effective detrusor inhibition. When to, and maybe most importantly, not to use anticholinergics in OAB patients. Well, as we know, anticholinergic drugs are currently the mainstay of treatment for overactive bladder. These should be offered to patients who fail to respond to conservative treatments. With more evidence to suggest an association between anticholinergics and cognitive impairment, all patients must be counseled thoroughly before these drugs are prescribed. Oxybutynin is found to have a higher association with cognitive impairment in older women, and therefore we should consider prescribing quaternary amines, such as trospium chloride, in those in whom cognitive impairment may have more significant consequences. Darifenacin, fesoteridine, and solifenacin are also considered safer drugs, as they've not been shown to cause cognitive dysfunction in elderly women in short-term studies. The duration of anticholinergic medication is also important, and once symptoms have been well controlled for a time, a trial of withdrawal could be considered. Although no single anticholinergic drug has been found to be superior to another for both cure or improvement of overactive bladder, the guidelines recommend a single daily dose, extended release preparation due to the lower rates of adverse effects. Patients should ideally be reviewed early on to assess both treatment response and for any adverse effects. Anticholinergics must be used in caution in patients with high post-void residual volumes, high anticholinergic burden, 
constipation, closed angle glaucoma, and as mentioned already, cognitive impairment. You can find more information on this in section four on pharmacological management of the EAU guidelines on non-neurogenic female LUTs. What are the alternatives in patients who fail first-line treatment? Well, if an anticholinergic treatment proves ineffective, you can consider dose escalation, if permitted, and provided that the medication is well tolerated. Alternatively, you could offer a different anticholinergic formulation, or use an alternative class of drug, such as the sympathetic agonist Mirabegron. Mirabegron can be used alongside an anticholinergic, but it can also be used alone. Other treatment options which can be offered include topical vaginal estrogen therapy in perimenopausal women. Although the majority of evidence for topical estrogen is in patients with stress incontinence, it has also been shown that vaginal estrogen therapy can improve overactive bladder symptoms in women with genitourinary syndrome of menopause. This is a syndrome comprising various menopausal symptoms associated with physical change of the vulva, vagina and lower urinary tract. It's also important to note that the available evidence suggests that vaginal treatment with topical estrogen is not associated with an increased risk of venous thromboembolism, endometrial hypertrophy or breast cancer that can be seen with systemic administration. Patients can then be reassured that this is safe to use. Other options for women that have failed first-line treatment include both percutaneous and transcutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. Both have been found to be effective in some patients, and transcutaneous tibial nerve stimulation has been shown to be better tolerated than percutaneous. Of course, if patients don't respond to these measures, then more invasive options such as intraditruza botulinum toxin A injections or sacral nerve stimulation must be explored, and the use of urodynamic evaluation at this stage can be beneficial. Thank you for joining Dr. Benoit Peronet and Ms. Neha Sira for this episode of EAU Podcast on Overactive Bladder in Women. For further information on the EAU guidelines on female lower urinary tract symptoms, please visit our website, www.euroweb.org forward slash guidelines. Further podcasts will be posted regularly on EAU Guidelines topics. For more EAU podcasts, please go to your favourite podcast app and subscribe to our EAU podcast channel for regular updates.